From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing, Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hard-working person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment, income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance, and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. Get the unmissable news stories of the day. This is the Beijing Hour. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour. One hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host, Shane Begum, with you on this Monday, November twenty seventh, two thousand twenty three. You're listening to the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. On today's program, the four-day truce between Israel and Hamas is in its final day, though both sides are talking about an extension. The foreign ministers of China, Japan, and South Korea have held a meeting on regional and global development. In Canada and the U.S., are bracing for the annual flu season. In business, China's latest economic data. In sports, Italy versus Australia at the Davis Cup. In culture and entertainment, the new Hunger Games movie continues to lead the North American box office. Now checking the day's top stories. The four-day truce between Israel and Hamas entered its final day on Monday. Hamas says it's seeking to extend the truce if serious efforts are made by Israel to release more Palestinian detainees. Israel says the ceasefire could be extended if Hamas continues to release at least 10 hostages a day. Sam Mednick has more from Jerusalem. 17 hostages were released from Gaza Sunday evening. They included 14 Israelis as well as three foreign nationals. Among them was the first American to be released, a four-year-old girl. There was also a Russian-Israeli dual citizen who was released. Hamas said that they were doing that because they appreciated Moscow's position during this war. Now, this is the first man to be let out since this deal began. So far, it has just been women and children. One of the elderly women who was released on Saturday was in very critical condition. She was taken directly to a hospital. The staff there said that she was the way she was because she was an elderly person who hadn't properly been taken care of. Now, in addition to this, there's also 39 Palestinian prisoners, which is part of the deal. They were released on Sunday as well. They will return largely to the West Bank and to East Jerusalem. A lot of the Palestinian prisoners who are being released were held by Israel for minor offenses, such as throwing stones or disturbing the public order. 
Now, this comes after a very touch-and-go day on Saturday where it was unclear if the deal was going to go ahead. Hamas delayed releasing the hostages, accusing Israel of not abiding by the terms of the agreement. It said that Israel hadn't let enough aid into Gaza, 50% less than it said it would. It also said that Israel wasn't releasing enough veteran Palestinian prisoners during the first batch. Qatar and Egypt stepped in and the deal was able to go ahead. Now, most of these hostages are in hospitals within Israel receiving first aid, first psychological first aid, as well as any treatment that they need and reuniting with their families. Little information has come out. The families haven't spoken that much, but there is some information starting to come out about what their time was like in captivity. One family who had three relatives released on Friday said that they told her that Hamas fed them irregularly. Some of them lost weight. One of them had to sleep in a makeshift bed, putting together two chairs, and that they had to wait in line for hours in order to use the bathroom. Hamas has said on Sunday for the first time that it is open to extending the deal. Israel has also said it's open to it, but it hasn't clearly definitively decided if it's going to go ahead or not. What we know is that there's a lot of international pressure right now, specifically from Qatar and the United States, for this deal to be extended. Speaking to CNN on Sunday, National Security Advisor for the U.S., Jake Sullivan, said that the ball is in Hamas's court. What that means is that for each additional day that there is no fighting, Hamas would have to release 10 hostages. Qatar's Prime Minister also spoke to CBS in an interview on Sunday saying he hopes the deal is extended. He said Hamas has to find the women and children, see how many they are, but that likely none of this is really going to happen until the fourth day, which is Monday. Even if it is extended for several days, Israel has made it very clear that they are going to continue this war. They say that this is just a pause. On Sunday, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu went into Gaza. He spoke to the troops. He said they were going to do everything to get all of the hostages back, but they were also going to fight until they had victory. Until this truce, Israel had ramped up its attacks on Gaza. And on Sunday, Israel and Hamas both confirmed that a top Hamas commander was killed. He is the, top, the commander of northern Gaza. And as far as we know, he's the top Hamas militant to be killed so far in this fighting. Israel had tried several times over the years to kill him. Also on Sunday, Israel said that in addition to this commander, three other top commanders had been killed before the truce began. That was Sam Mednick reporting. Over the weekend, many stranded Palestinians seized upon the truce to cross from Egypt into the Gaza Strip, eager to reunite with family and friends. However, conditions remain harsh for many. Yasser Hakim has more from the Rafah border crossing in Egypt. Behind me now are the Palestinians who are stranded in Egypt uh, once the uh, broke fighting broke out and they want to go back to Gaza. This is something special. Usually in a case of war and atrocities like we've seen and the bombings, people try to escape or to evacuate. On the contrary, hundreds of Palestinians rushed to the Rafah border when they were told they could return to Gaza during the truce. There are about 2,500 of us in Al Arish. They all want to return, even in these circumstances. It's more dignified for us to die with our children there. He says they're going back because they won't allow Israel to displace them from their homeland. This group was in Egypt when the conflict erupted, leaving loved ones behind. I was here for surgery after I was shot in my leg by an Israeli soldier, but the fighting broke out so I stayed. I've been in Egypt for 60 days. There was a previously failed attempt to cross the border. We came to the border before, stamped the papers, and were ready to enter Gaza. But Israel bombed the border and we had to go back. 
The Gazans have been hosted by the Egyptian government in houses at the nearby Arish city. So the Palestinians here are ready and waiting to cross the border just beside us. And they know that they might not last inside Gaza for two or three days alive because the bombing has not differentiated between militants, women, children or elderly. As Omar leads the way into Gaza, he yearns to reunite with his wife and baby daughter. I'm so happy I'm going back. Thank God. My whole family is there, but I lost all contact with them. It's a dark journey back for Omar, not knowing if his loved ones will be there to greet him or maybe they're buried under the rubble of the stricken Gaza city. That was Yasser Hakim reporting. A Yemeni official says unidentified attackers suspected of belonging to the Yemeni Houthi militia seized a commercial oil tanker off the coast of Aden on Sunday. The official who asked to remain anonymous said the Liberian flagship is owned by an Israeli company. On November 19th, the Houthi group claimed to have captured an Israeli cargo ship in the Red Sea. The group linked their action to the ongoing conflict in the Gaza Strip. Coming up, the foreign ministers of China, Japan and South Korea hold a trilateral meeting. Dive into news like never before with Deep Dive, the podcast from CGTN Radio. Join our global reporters for captivating stories and thought-provoking conversations. Search Deep Dive on your favorite podcast platform and get ready to dive in. We're at eight minutes past the hour. A trilateral foreign ministers meeting between China, Japan, and South Korea has taken place in the Korean city of Busan. China's Wang Yi called on the three countries to play a more proactive role in promoting regional and global development. He stressed that the three countries should focus on mutual benefit and win-win results, restart negotiations on their trilateral free trade agreement, and contribute to the common goal of pushing for a free trade area of the Asia-Pacific. South Korea's Park Jin and Japan's Yoko Kamikawa spoke highly of the progress made in trilateral cooperation and expressed their willingness for more substantive cooperation in various fields. The three sides agreed to create conditions for the China-Japan-South Korea leaders meeting. Jack Barton has more. A weekend in Busan marked by two days of bilateral meetings between the foreign ministers of China, South Korea and Japan, all culminating in a meeting of all three neighboring nations with a consensus to restore and normalize three-way cooperation to be furthered through a trilateral leaders' summit. These meetings were last held in late 2019 before being suspended due to deteriorating relations between Tokyo and Seoul, followed by the COVID-19 pandemic. China's foreign minister said despite the pause, all three had managed to deepen cooperation on issues ranging from the signing of a major regional trade deal to managing the pandemic. This reflects that the cooperation between the three countries has a deep foundation, strong demand, huge potential and broad prospects. Wang added that China, Japan and South Korea should play an active role in promoting regional and global development. Japan's foreign minister said she believed the trilateral cooperation greatly contributes to peace and prosperity even at a time of many unprecedented challenges. Pyongyang's recent military satellite launch and cooperation with Russia was also discussed at the meeting. 
Park said the three ministers agreed to continue communication to help resolve the current tensions on the peninsula. That was Jack Barton in Busan. Ukraine's transporting grain through a new shipping corridor, despite threats from Russia. Uh, the corridor was launched after Russia pulled out of a UN-brokered agreement that allowed food to flow safely from Ukraine during the war. After ending the agreement, Russia attacked Ukraine's Black Sea ports, a vital connection to global trade. Deputy Economy Minister Taras Kachka says that despite such attacks, Ukraine's exported more than 1.5 million metric tons of products over the past couple of months. Thanks to our military successes, particularly those we've achieved in the Black Sea, pushing out the Russian Federation's Black Sea fleet and other security-sensitive measures, we've been able to reinstate navigation to Ukrainian ports from Ukrainian ports themselves. Ukrainian agricultural authorities say the goal for the new shipping corridor is to export at least 6 million metric tons of grain each month. India's High Commissioner to Canada has defended India in response to the allegations that India was involved in the assassination of a Sikh separatist in Canada. A diplomatic spat erupted between the two countries after Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said in September that there were credible allegations of Indian involvement in the killing of Canadian citizen Hardeep Singh Nijar in suburban Vancouver. High Commissioner Sanjay Kumar Verma says India was convicted without investigation. Because India was asked to cooperate. And if you look at the typical criminal terminology, when someone asks to cooperate, which means that you have already been convicted and you better cooperate. So we took it in a very different uh, uh, interpretation. But we always said that if there is anything specific and relevant and communicated to us, we will look into it. Nijar, a 45-year-old Sikh activist and plumber, was killed by mass gunmen in Surrey outside Vancouver in June. Uh, for years, India's claimed that Nijar, uh, Nijar had links to terrorism, an allegation that he had denied. Uh, New Delhi uh, worries about, uh, New, rather, New Delhi's worries about Sikh separatist groups in Canada have long strained the relationship between the two countries, despite strong defense and trade ties. India had previously accused Canada of harboring separatists and terrorists, but Canada has repeatedly rejected the claim. India's paid tribute to the over 160 people killed in an Islamist militant attack in Mumbai on the 15th anniversary of the event. Senior state politicians laid wreaths at a martyr's memorial in downtown Mumbai. Other events were held at some of the sites of the 2008 attack that raised fears of war with Pakistan. Victim Devika Rodawan says that he's still suffering from the trauma of the assault. In the last 15 years, my life has changed in many ways. There were many ups and downs. I got honor, but also lots of fake promises. Some people supported me, but some didn't. While some supported me only for show, but wounds still haven't healed in these 15 years. They're still fresh, and I'm struggling. Six Americans were among the 166 people killed by 10 gunmen who infiltrated the financial hub and spent three days spraying bullets and throwing grenades around city landmarks. 
New Zealand sworn in a new government and parliament's expected to sit next week to begin work on new policies. National Party leader Christopher Luxon became the country's 42nd prime minister at a ceremony on Monday morning. The incoming government released its coalition agreement on Friday. Uh, they outlined policy plans, which included a single mandate for the country's central bank, a plan to roll back the use of the Maori language, and an end to, uh, to a ban on oil and gas exploration. Congolese Nobel Peace Prize laureate Dennis Mukwege has kicked off his campaign for president in next month's election. He promised to tackle corruption and the violent conflict ravaging communities in the country's east. When you entrust me with the governance of this country, the first thing I want to do is to do everything I can to put in place a structured and modernized army. The 68-year-old medical doctor told supporters that he'd also end famine in Congo. Uh, Mukwege is seeking to run in the election against Congolese President Felix Shisekida and several other popular opposition figures. He's known for his years-long activism in the country, now surviving an assassination attempt in 2012 and facing death threats. Sierra Leone President Julius Marabio has uh, said that claims, or has claimed, rather says, uh, calm has returned after attacks in the capital. Uh, security forces repelled what the government called renegade soldiers who attempted to break into a military armory in Freetown. The government imposed a nationwide curfew after assailants attacked a prison and a police station. The president says security operations and an investigation are ongoing. Coming up, Canada and the U.S. are bracing for flu season. Climate Watch is CGTN Radio's new podcast focusing on the impact of climate change. We have conversations with people on the front line about this critical issue. Listen to Climate Watch on all major podcast platforms and join us in taking action to save the planet we call home. 16 minutes past the hour. Canada's health authorities warn that the country's flu season will be underway any day now. The latest data on influenza trends finds that the rate of positive cases stands at 6.8%. That's higher than the seasonal threshold of 5%. Authorities say if the current trend remains. Uh, the start of the influenza season will be declared at the national level this week. In the meantime, the U.S. has issued a warning as flu cases are on the rise. At least seven U.S. states are reporting unusual levels of illness. China's National Health Commission's addressed the recent surge in respiratory illness. It's feared that the winter season could make the situation more severe as temperatures fall. Wang Mengjia has details from Beijing. Since mid-October, China has seen an uptick in seasonal respiratory diseases, especially among children. Pediatric hospitals are grappling with a record number of patients, prompting the Health Commission to issue guidelines for managing the surge. The Commission has directed localities to implement stratified care, enhancing the capabilities of grassroots facilities. Milder cases in children are encouraged to seek treatment at community clinics or under pediatricians at general hospitals. An expert highlights the vulnerability of elderly people to respiratory illnesses in winter, saying the reason is usually underlying disease. Vaccinations are the most important measure for the elderly against respiratory diseases. The elderly also need to pay more attention to temperature variations and humidity changes at home. Li also emphasized the importance of managing underlying diseases and maintaining a healthy lifestyle for the elderly.
To beef up containment measures for the possible cases in the coming month, health officials stressed to use different sources of data as a part of the efforts to strengthen monitoring of and early warning against contagious diseases, while personal protection measures should be reinforced and vaccination campaigns targeting the elderly, people with pre-existing diseases and children should be intensified. That was Wang Mengjie reporting. Many villages in China that used to see so many talents leave for big cities or overseas are now attracting well-educated young people who want better environments, improved public facilities, and favorable policies. Guoyan toured a village in Huangshan, Anhui province, and spoke with a bunch of young talents whose careers are taking off. The quiet and cozy village, lying at the foot of a beautiful mountain, comes alive as night falls. Visitors come to enjoy a warm dinner at a bustling pizzeria at the entrance of the village. For many of them, a small restaurant run by an American guy in a Chinese village that has rarely seen a foreigner is something interesting enough to arouse curiosity. It's tasty. I came all the way to eat pizza with my kid. Zhuowen's pizza is nice. We just toured around in 99 and decided to try some pizza made by Zhuo Wen. We watched his videos on TikTok. We'll take some back home for my family to see if they like it or not. Just opening its door a few months ago, the small restaurant ran by Adrian Burrell from Arizona and his wife Chiu Tong from Huangshan has not only become a must-visit site for tourists, but also a meeting place for local villagers. We didn't expect that this place could attract so many people. We thought it would be peaceful at first, but it's a good thing for us anyway. Adrian is a food vlogger who has over 130,000 followers on Douyin, the Chinese counterpart of TikTok. Zhuo Wen, Adrian's Chinese name, is more familiar to local folks here. He came to China many years ago and recently opened his pizzeria in Nanxinan village in Huangshan, his wife's hometown. Apart from the environment, support from local government is a key factor that attracted them to settle down here. We gained a lot of support from local government, which is a huge relief for us. The costs of renovation and basic facilities were covered by government investment. The couple's restaurant is one of a bunch of new businesses recently settled in Nanxinan village. They are called new villagers, which refer to well-educated young people who live and work in rural areas. The ancient village, which has hundreds of years' history of making tofu, has been trying to diversify its revenue sources by attracting young talents to help foster its burgeoning tourism sector. This summer, the village kicked off a plan to recruit new villagers who are capable of management and marketing. So far, a dozen managers are running various businesses here. Walking on the road along the Xing'an River, deemed as the mother river by local residents, Dong Xiaoyan, who calls herself a village lady, shares her countryside story. Wherever you're working, by the Huangpu River in Shanghai or Xing'an River in Huangshan, you have access to the internet and enjoy a nice cup of coffee. 
At the village, I have a way bigger personal space than in a densely populated city. For people who love driving, the bonus here is that you don't have to pay parking fees. After graduating from a university in Australia, Dong started to work as an art curator at a culture and tourism company in the famed metropolis. Our company is headquartered in Shanghai. I stayed in the office for only two hours in all. I decided to come to the village right off the bat when they told me there was a rural development program. The village has an amazing scenic landscape. The local government has invested four million yuan or five hundred and sixty thousand U.S. dollars into boosting emerging businesses joined by young people. This is part of the efforts made by local governments to improve rural development, and it gives us a glimpse of how villages across the country attract young talents and become prosperous. China is working to realize an ambitious vision to promote social and economic development in rural areas, improve farm living standards, and reduce the urban-rural gap. To revitalize the vast rural areas, the country has beefed up efforts to invest in local infrastructure, fostering agricultural industries, and tapping into new opportunities. All these tasks need the participation of young talents with various skills and knowledge. In China's rural areas, the elderly makes up nearly 24 percent of the population, 16 percent higher than rural areas. In Nanxinan Village, the proportion is 17 percent. Attracting and retaining young people is among the priorities for village officials. Xu Xiaobo has spent his two-year term as a village party official into fostering new economic opportunities while improving the village environment. Attracting young people to the village requires a sustainable approach. For some villages, the priority should be on improving the environment, which helps them attract various new industries and talents. This is what we have done for the village over the past few years. Identifying the key advantages of a village is key, as each village has unique characteristics and needs to find its own way to develop. With a master's degree and the ability to work diligently, Xu Xiaobo is one of the 200,000 well-educated young officials of his position, serving rural areas with their knowledge and broad perspective. Talking about the future of the village, Xu and Dong told us they believe more young people will join them. Without young creative minds, no matter how much money you invest, how many infrastructure you build, it's hard to achieve rural revitalization. Our village will be more prosperous and attract more young people. For the Beijing Hour, this is Guo Yan in Anhui, Huangshan Province. Colombia is replacing coca, with, uh, which is used to produce cocaine, with cacao, uh, uh, cacao trees rather, to produce chocolate. The initiative also aims to push forward the conservation and reforestation of the Amazon rainforest. Michelle Begay has more from Bogota. Chocolate producers from Latin America met in Bogota, Colombia, for the country's 2023 Choco Show in November. Producers here aim to educate attendees about the growing industry and its production in the Americas. 
In Colombia's farmlands, the cacao bean, the raw form of chocolate, has gained popularity. The country's National Cacao Federation says thousands of farmers are looking to replace illicit crops like coca, used to produce cocaine, with cacao trees as they grow in similar climates. The Colombian cacao bean is produced surrounded by trees. Cacao comes from a tree, but it's also accompanied by other trees, and this means there is no loss of vegetation or soil degradation, and we contribute to the habitat of other species. It has an environmental richness in the way it's produced. Estimates by non-government agencies say that 40 to 50 percent of cacao crops in Colombia come from crop substitution programs. Since the 2016 peace agreement between Colombia's government and FARC rebels, the government has searched for ideas to strengthen farmers' livelihoods and deter them from illegal economies. One idea to help farmers was the 2018 Cacao Forests and Peace Initiative, where private and public sectors worked together to promote cacao production, aiming toward conservation and reforestation of the Amazon rainforest. That was Michelle Begay reporting. A volunteer has been planting trees in an ancient woodland in the UK. Uh, the area in Luton had lost half of its forest coverage since the 1940s. UK charity Wildlife Trust is organizing volunteers to get involved in maintaining and restoring the environment. Matt Sutcliffe with the charity says volunteers play a vital role in improving local environments. Our volunteers have been restoring forests in Luton for years and have witnessed new trees establish themselves and thrive. Uh, some of them say that planting trees and seeing them grow helps to reduce the feeling of powerlessness in the face of climate change. We're at 28 past the hour. Beijing minus 5 overnight, followed by overcast skies. And a high of plus 3 on Tuesday. Chongqing's 12 overnight, followed by clouds and a high of 21. Last is minus 3 this evening, then cloudy and 13. Hong Kong's down to 20, then sunny with a high of 25. Uh, elsewhere, Tokyo's 9 degrees overnight. It'll be sunny and 22 on Tuesday. Islamabad's 12 this evening, then haze and 23. Bangkok's down to 26 degrees and partly cloudy with a high of 33. In Africa, Nairobi is getting thunderstorms in 24 degrees. And finally to Oceania, Sydney's at 19 this evening, some rainfall and a high of 22 on Tuesday. Auckland's down to 14, then partly cloudy in 21. Port Vila, some clouds and 30 degrees Celsius. It's time for a short break. So far this hour, the four-day truce between Israel and Hamas is in its final day, though both sides are talking about an extension. Uh, the foreign ministers of China, Japan, and South Korea have held a meeting on regional and global development. And Canada and the U.S. are bracing for the annual flu season. Shane Bigham with you. Stay with us here on the Beijing Hour. Experience the musical classics of the East. Mingle with the masters of Chinese music. Music Talks. Witness the sound of antiquity and modernity. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. We then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures, and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. 
We have hope for humanity and the world. Donated an additional Hear the difference with CGTN Radio. Join our global network to connect with the world. CGTN Radio. Hear the difference. I love you. 我爱你. This might be the easiest way to say I love you, since there are so many other romantic expressions. No matter if you're a rookie, or a sophisticated learner, there is definitely something that will interest you. Check out Takeaway Chinese, a world that starts with 你好. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Bigham with you on this Monday. Still to come. In business, China's latest economic data. In sports, Italy versus Australia at the Davis Cup. In culture and entertainment, the new Hunger Games movie continues to lead the North American box office. Contact us, you can email radio at cgtn.com or follow our X account, formerly Twitter, at CGTN Radio. First of all, with today's headline news, here's Wang Zihang. Thank you, Shane. The Political Bureau of the Communist Party of China's Central Committee has held a meeting to review guidelines on policies for further promoting the high-quality development of the Yangtze River economic belt. General Secretary Xi Jinping of the CPC Central Committee chaired the meeting. The meeting stressed efforts in high-level protection of the Yangtze River Basin and noted that the ecological red line must be upheld and placed under oversight. The meeting also called for efforts to advance carbon emissions, reduce pollution, increase vegetation and pursue growth in coordinated manner. China will hold a UN Security Council high-level meeting on the Palestinian-Israeli issue on Wednesday. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi will travel to New York to chair the meeting. China is the rotating president of the UN Security Council for November. In the US, the Burlington police say a suspect has been arrested in the shooting of the three Palestinian college students near the University of Vermont. Two of the men were in stable condition and the other suffered much more serious injuries. The three, all age 20, were walking during a visit to the home of one of the victim's relatives when they were confronted by a white man with a handgun. Local authorities say they are treating the incident as a possible hate crime. South Korea's Yonghap news agency says North Korea has deployed soldiers and heavy weapons at guard posts near its border with South Korea. This comes after the suspension of a military accord between the two sides. Pyongyang says Seoul breached a 2018 inter-Korean military accord and other key agreements between the two countries. The North has also condemned joint military drills between Seoul and Washington as a provocative act that violates the military accord. Heavy rains in Somalia have killed at least 96 people. The country has experienced extreme weather conditions since October. According to the United Nations, the country has recently witnessed the worst flooding in decades, displacing about 700,000 people. Aid agencies are warning of potential outbreaks of disease. 
Japan has culled about 40,000 birds following the first reported case of avian flu in the country this season. Local authorities have identified a farm in the southern Japanese prefecture of Saga as the source of the outbreak. Japan has taken preventative measures, including culling all birds on the affected farm and restricting the transportation of poultry and egg products within a 10-kilometer radius of the epicenter. Bulgaria has declared a state of emergency as winter storms bring heavy snowfall to the country. The country's prime minister says more than 1,000 communities have been experiencing power outages. At least two people died in traffic accidents, and 26 people were injured during stormy weather in the country. Strong winds have also closed roads, caused travel delays, and downed trees. Extreme weather have also hit Romania and Moldova, leaving at least one person dead and hundreds of areas without electricity. Residents in India are complaining about throat and eye irritation, and pollution continues to plague the national capital. Persistent smog has greatly reduced visibility in New Delhi, prompting the U.S. embassy there earlier to place the city's air quality under the hazardous category. A local resident named Narendra describes the current situation. Throat gets sore, eyes get itchy and watery. The children are facing more difficulties than us. New Delhi's air quality gets especially worse during the winter months. When wind speeds drop and cooling air traps pollutants spewed by vehicles, industry, and farmers burning agricultural waste in surrounding states, a railway linking Lijiang and Shangri-La has opened to traffic. Both cities are well-known tourist destinations in the southwestern Chinese province of Yunnan. Travel time between the two cities is now down to one hour and eighteen minutes. The 139-kilometer railway also connects Shangri-La with the provincial capital Kunming. China State Railway Group says the new line will help improve transportation in ethnic minority areas, which will promote national unity, consolidate border security, and promote Yunnan's high-quality development. The United States, Britain, and 16 other countries have unveiled what is described as the first detailed international agreement on how to keep artificial intelligence safe from rogue actors. In a 20-page document unveiled on Sunday, the 18 countries agreed that companies designing and using AI need to develop and deploy it in a way that keeps customers and the wider public safe from misuse. It is the latest in a series of initiatives by governments around the world to shape the. Development of artificial intelligence. The framework deals with questions of how to keep AI technology from being hijacked by hackers and includes recommendations such as only releasing models after appropriate security testing. All right, thank you very much. That was Wang Zhang. This is Shane Begum in the Chinese capital. Coming up in business, China's latest economic data. Wondered what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African? How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China Africa Talk. Hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, academics, Chinese natives, and more. Get on our wavelength every week to find out what's real with China Africa Talk. Find us on your favorite podcast. We'll see you there. Thirty-seven past the hour now. Turning to business, and here's Tianyu. Thank you, Shane. Stock markets on the Chinese mainland finished lower on Monday.
Timothy Pope has more. The Shanghai Composite Index fell about a third of 1%. The Shenzhen component was off by more than half of 1%. Uh, real estate stocks were leading those losses with financials, materials and consumer stocks also lagging. Uh, it was uh, in many ways a similar session to Friday. There was a continued outflow of foreign capital from the A-share markets and speculative buying on the uh, small Beijing stock exchange still at fever pitch. Uh, the Beijing 50 index jumped 11.4% today, uh, hitting its highest level this year. It's now up more than 46% since the start of November thanks to a flurry of speculation and policy support and uh, just generally poor sentiment that's gripped the larger indices. Uh, all that uh, has made the small innovation focused Beijing 50 uh, a bit of a money magnet over the last few weeks. Today every single company on that index rose and around 30 of the firms were uh, up by uh, the index's daily limit of 30%. That was Timothy Pope in Shanghai. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index dropped around 0.2%. In Japan, the Nikkei was down 0.5%. In the first 10 months, China's economy withstood headwinds and continued to improve. A number of sectors and indicators have shown significant improvements during the period, suggesting an overall trend of economic recovery. Jiang Tao looks at China's latest economic data. Figures show that industrial profits rose 2.7% in October from a year earlier, marking the third month of on-year increase. The raw material production sector emerged as the most important growth driver, with a robust 22.9% profit surge. In the first 10 months of this year, China's industrial profit fell 7.8%, narrowing from a 9% decline in the January to September period. Revenues accumulated by industrial companies recorded growth for the first time this year, rising 0.3% in the January to October period after staying flat in the first three quarters. In the forex market, the country's transaction volume reached over 16 trillion yuan, or around 2.3 trillion US dollars in October. The total volume in the first 10 months reached nearly 210 trillion yuan. Meanwhile, China's international balance of payments in goods and services showed a current account surplus of around $26 billion in October. China exported goods worth nearly 2 trillion yuan in October, while importing goods worth 1.6 trillion. On the financial front, Chinese authorities have unveiled a raft of measures to strengthen financial services for private companies. Stronger financial support will go to private firms, especially micro, small and medium-sized businesses, as well as those in tech-intensive areas and low-carb industries. The circular stressed diverse financing channels, including credit, bonds and stock options. Loans to these businesses came at around $4 trillion US dollars at the end of October, up over 20% from a year earlier. China has over 42 million small and micro businesses with loan balances so far this year, marking an increase of around 4.5 million. For the Beijing Hour, this is Jiang Tao. Chinese authorities say the country's newly implemented tax refunds, as well as tax and fee cuts, reached over 1.6 trillion yuan, or about 223 billion U.S. dollars, in the first 10 months of this year. In March, the State Council approved increases of the additional pre-tax deduction for research and development expenses from 75 to 100 percent if the expenses are incurred as part of long-term institutional arrangements. High-tech enterprises are eligible for a preferred differential corporate in income tax rate of 15%, while the standard rate is 25%. 
Over a hundred new products have debuted at the just-concluded Global Digital Trade Expo. The event has attracted over 800 enterprises from around the world. The expo also serves as a hub for knowledge exchange with 10 major platforms covering diverse topics such as digital cultural trade and digital finance. Cui Weijie with the Ministry of Commerce says digital trade has become a new driving force for China to link with the world. Digital trade has provided a new driving force for the development of trading goods and services. It's become a new growth point for China's international trade, and an important support for promoting high-quality development of foreign trade, as well as accelerating the building of a country strong in trade. The latest report released at the expo highlights that cross-border Silk Road e-commerce imports and exports now make up over one third of China's total cross-border e-commerce trade. For more on the digital trade fair, Lili Liu spoke with Zhang Gong, a professor at the University of International and Business and Economics. First of all, what do you think are the key highlights from this year's digital trade fair? Well, I think the second、uh, digital fair、um, contributes immensely to the discussions of the rules and norms and governance of cross-border、um, uh, uh, e-commerce、uh, kind of a trade. I think you know this represents a major step towards that direction. The overall tra- trade trend is towards more kind of a you know digital-based、um, piecemeal kind of a trade as opposed to traditional container-based. And this represents you know, new challenges,、uh, new calls for new regulations. And I think you know the discussions about that at this、uh, event is very eventful, is very important.、Uh, and I think、uh, it's good that the Hangzhou government is taking a leadership role in that regard. And also,、uh, Professor Gong. So we know that China has signed agreements in the field of tech cooperation with about 80 countries now, and we understand that global trade is now faced with, faced with much uncertainties. So at a time like this, what role do you think cooperation plays in our course to promote tech innovation and progress? Yeah, I think agreements like this really, you know, establish sort of like a, a institutional environment where trade of the new phenomenon, trade of the future, can take place、um, smoothly.、Um, I think,、um, you know, China's trade with the rest of the world is still expanding,、uh, even though、uh, there are some negative reports about that. But, but you know, overall, I think,、uh, you know, trade with the rest of the world is still booming, and you know, Chinese companies. Um, as they expand more overseas, expand more globally, certainly、uh, important players、uh, in that trend,、uh, and I think agreements like this、uh, really contribute to that trend. That was Professor Zhang Gong at the University of International and Business and Economics. U.S. consumers spent a record 9.8 billion dollars online on Black Friday. That is roughly a 7.5 percent jump from last year. Shoppers also took to stores all across the country looking for discounted products at the beginning of the holiday shopping season. Nathan King reports from Washington. It was 6 a.m. Friday morning, Macy's department store in Manhattan. The turkey barely digested, but Americans doing what they do best—they went shopping. It doesn't look like anything slowed down, not even a little. Prices for today—it's a perfect day to shop. The prices are down 30, 40, 60 percent on some things. So instead of waiting till Christmas shopping now, I bought several gifts. U.S. consumers also spent over five billion dollars on Thanksgiving Day itself, and are set to spend even more on Cyber Monday, 
when online behemoths like Amazon offer deep discounts on online purchases. Deep discounts seem to be what's been pulling in the people this year. Sales may be at record highs, but profits may not be. Many retailing giants, from Abercrombie and Fitch to Walmart, have warned that this holiday shopping period may be weaker than expected. Retailers and consumers already are having a great holiday season. So yesterday, consumers purchased more than they've ever purchased before. We saw $5.6 billion of uh, purchases and products yesterday bought, and then that's a 5.5% increase from year over year last year. Retailers are finding that consumers are a little tighter with their dollar in that they're spending more with on essential goods and services. So what that means is that they've had to increase the amount of discounts that they have across products. After Black Friday, many millions of American travelers, however, returning from the Thanksgiving break, may be seeing red. The winter weather alert has been stretching across 11 states, from New York to Texas. Heavy snow has been hitting the Rocky Mountain states hard, with Wyoming getting several inches of snow. Chicago also could be hit, which is a main transport air hub. Heavy rain is also set to pummel the East Coast too. The good news for Americans and the American economy is that it looks like U.S. Thanksgiving travel is back to pre-pandemic levels. 49 million drivers expect to have taken to the roads uh, this Thanksgiving weekend and 2.9 million Americans flying. And with gas prices coming down and airline tickets prices falling too, well, that makes it a more normal Thanksgiving and Americans, for that, are giving thanks. And that was Nathan King reporting. All right, thank you very much. That was Tianyu with Business. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up in sports, Italy versus Australia at the Davis Cup. Sideline Story brings you all things sports-related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world. 48 past the hour now. Turning to sports, and here's Yang Guang. Thank you, Shane. In tennis, Yannick Sinner capped his perfect week by leading Italy to its first Davis Cup title in nearly 50 years. Sinner took his fifth straight win of the week by beating Alex Terminal in the singles match of Sunday's final, giving Italy a 2-0 win over Australia for its first Davis Cup title since 1976. As always said, it helps a lot, you know, to play to play for the whole the, the whole team. It has been an incredible feeling, I think, for for all of us, and obviously we are really happy. Matteo Analdi had given Italy the first point with a three-set win over Alexei Poprain. Sina beat top-ranked Novak Djokovic in the singles and doubles matches in Saturday's semi-final showdown against Serbia. Max Verstappen has completed the most dominant season in Formula One history, winning the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix to make it 19 victories in 22 rounds this season. Starting from the pole, the Red Bull driver came under pressure from Charles Leclerc for the lead on the opening lap, but he eased away after that for the final race of the season. It was a bit emotional on the end lap, you know, it was the last time I was sitting in the car, which has of course given me a lot, so... Yeah, I'm of course very proud uh, to win here also here the last race. Um, but yeah, I have to say a big thank you to everyone at Red Bull. It's just been 
an incredible year. Um, it will be hard to do something similar again, but uh, we definitely uh, yeah, enjoyed this year. Sergio Perez crossed the finishing line in second place after being allowed to move up a position by Leclerc on the final lap, but a five-second penalty saw him demoted to fourth. A third-place finish from George Russell ensured the runners-up spot for Mercedes in the constructors' standings. Chinese racer Zhou Guanyu ended racing 17th and finished the season in 18th overall. In the English Premier League, Alejandro Garnacho scored from an outrageous overhead kick to set up Manchester United's 3-0 win at Everton. The Argentine star met across from the right with a bicycle kick from 15 metres that flew into the top corner in the third minute. It had echoes of former United striker Wayne Rooney's spectacular strike in the Manchester derby in 2011. United manager Eric Ten Hag says it should be the goal of the Premier League season. Yeah, it was a fantastic goal and season is eh, still many games to play, but probably already maybe the goal of the season. As I said before, not only the finish, but also I think eh, it was the total from the back to the end. But of course, the finish is incredible. Marcus Rashford and Anthony Martial capped the victory for United with two more goals. Also on Sunday, Aston Villa came from behind to win 2-1 over injury-hit Tottenham and moved just two points off the lead. It was a third straight league loss for Tottenham, whose campaign is now in danger of unraveling, when not long ago the team managed by Angie Postacoglu was in first place. It's just a situation we're in at the moment and you know, we'll, we'll get through it. Um, might take a little while, but we'll get through it. But as long as we show the same intent and play the football we did today, I've got no doubt that uh, when we come out the other side, we'll be a very good football team. Villa has climbed to fourth place, tied on points with Liverpool in third after 13 games. In the Italian Serie A, Lotero Martini scored again, but Inter Milan had to be counted with a share of the spoils as the league leader drew 1-1 at second place to Juventus. Martini's 13th league goal of the season cancelled out Dusan Vlahovic's opener in the derby d'Italia. Inter remains two points above Juventus. In Spain, Rodrigo made the most of his last-minute addition to the Real Madrid lineup, scoring two goals and setting up another in a 3-0 win against the Cardiz. Rodrigo was set to start the match on the bench, but made the starting eleven after Brahim Diaz fell ill with stomach problems. Jude Bellingham scored his 14th goal with Madrid in all competitions. The victory put Madrid at the top of the La Liga standings. And finally, in badminton action from the China Masters in Shenzhen, Chinese Olympic champion Chen Yufei won the women's singles title. One compatriot Han Yue retired due to injury after the second game of the final. Han won a close first game but clearly struggled before deciding to retire as Chen took the second game 21-4. In the mixed doubles final, China's Chen Suwei and Huang Yachong dominated South Korea's Siu Xinjai and Chai Yujin to win the title. Zhang says it was a rather easy final. I think we were more excited than our opponents, and the South Koreans did not have more desire to win. We had motivation to win the match, and we played better here. Zhang and Huang were playing in their ninth final this season, winning six of them. Thank you very much. That was Yang Guang with sports. Coming up in culture and entertainment, the new Hunger Games movie continues to lead the North American box office. The Beijing Hour. Hello, I'm Peter Dinklage from X-Men Days of Future Past. You are listening to The Beijing Hour. Hi, I'm Kathy Freeman, and you're listening to The Beijing Hour.
Hi everyone, I'm Lang Lang. Welcome to the Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour, your window to China and the world. Fifty-three minutes past now. Turning to culture and entertainment, here's Do Hongyu. Thank you, Shane. Walt Disney had hoped that its animated movie Wish would rule the Thanksgiving weekend box office in North America, but moviegoers instead feasted on leftovers. The Hunger Games, Songbirds and Snakes led ticket sales for the second weekend with nearly 29 million U.S. dollars. Those tributes don't have a choice. In two weeks of release, Songbirds and Snakes has grossed nearly a hundred million dollars domestically. The closer contest was for second place, where Napoleon narrowly outmaneuvered Wish. Ridley Scott's epic outperformed expectations to take an estimated 20 million over the weekend. The film, starring Joaquin Phoenix as the French emperor, has mixed reviews, with a 61% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Wish, with over 19 million dollars in its first weekend, added to some of Disney's recent headaches, including the, the underperforming The Marvels. The traditional Chinese operas represent the rich essence of Chinese culture, embodying the artistic brilliance and dedication of generations. Among the first, the most prominent traditional opera genres in China is Yuji Opera, designated as national-level intangible cultural heritage. Xia Ruixue visited a Yuji Opera master to observe her efforts in preserving and advancing this traditional art form. To 77-year-old Hu Meiling, Yuji Opera holds a special place in her heart. Having practiced and performed this traditional Chinese opera for over five decades, Hu has emerged as a master and a guardian of China's national intangible cultural heritage. Despite being retired, Hu remains actively engaged in Yuju opera activities throughout the country. Yesterday, I returned from Shenyang in northern China's Liaoning Province. I served as a judge in a competition for traditional Chinese operas there. This morning, I'm conducting training sessions for young Yuju artists. My schedule is quite demanding. Yuju opera stands as one of the five principal traditional opera genres in China, originating and thriving in central China's Henan Province. Among the most famous and beloved Yuju opera works is Hua Mulan, recounting the tale of the legendary heroine Hua Mulan. When her elderly father is called to serve in the army, Hua disguises herself as a man to take his place in defending the nation. This iconic piece was initially premiered by the renowned Yuju opera master Chang Xiangyu in 1950, who was also Hu Meiling's mentor. Today, Hu is passing on her knowledge to her own students, just as her teacher did for her. When I see the enthusiasm of these younger artists to learn, I feel really glad. Their dedication is invaluable to the development of Yuju. As a senior artist, I will give all the knowledge and expertise I have attained throughout my career to them. Traditionally, Chinese operas were predominantly appreciated by older generations. However, in recent times, these timeless art forms have captivated audiences of all age groups. The rise of short video content has introduced a growing number of young people to the world of traditional performance arts, according to a report by Douyin, a social media platform for creating short videos, 
over 50% of the viewers who engaged with traditional Chinese operas on the platform in 2021 were born after the 1990s and 2000s. This shift has further motivated Hu Meiling to share her knowledge of Yuju opera with younger actors and actresses, instilling greater confidence in preservation of this traditional art form. That was Xiao Rishue speaking with a Yuju opera master. Chinese rock music festival Friends from the East cheered up thousands of fans in New York City over the weekend. The first leg of the two-day event attracted over 3,000 people on Saturday. The fans, mostly in their 20s or 30s, filled up Knockdown Center in Queens as Chinese bands Wu Tiaren and Omnipotent Youth Society featured in the performance. The bands also had tours in other U.S. cities, including Seattle, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., and San Francisco. Thank you very much. That was Do Hongyu with Culture and Entertainment. 58 past the hour. Beijing's down to minus 5 overnight. That'll be followed by overcast conditions and a high of plus 3 on Tuesday. Chongqing's 12 tonight, followed by clouds and a high of 21. Last is down to minus 3 overnight, then cloudy in 13. Hong Kong's down to 20, then sunny with a high of 25. Uh, elsewhere, Tokyo's 9 degrees overnight. It'll be sunny and 22 degrees Celsius on Tuesday. And that's it for this edition of the Beijing Hour. Making news today, uh, the four-day truce between Israel and Hamas is in the final day, but both sides are talking about an extension, and Canada and the U.S. are bracing for the annual flu season. On behalf of the staff, this is Shane Begum in the Chinese capital, hoping you'll join us for the next edition of the Beijing Hour and open a window to the world together. Takeaway Chinese, where you can take some Chinese away and experience progress day by day. Takeaway Chinese, we will promise you a difference. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Roundtable, coming to you live from Beijing. From Beijing. Roundtable. 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 Connecting China and the world. We bring you fun and timely discussions about what's affecting our lives everywhere, every day. Tune in to Roundtable, where the East meets the West, and understanding is the goal. From North to South, East to West, people in China are chasing their dreams and leaving their mark. Want to know how they beat the odds and made a difference? Footprints brings you the true life stories of their journeys. 